Well, last week we entered the final narrative section in Matthew, which really brings us to the focal point of the gospel, not just this gospel, but the gospel in general and all four gospels, spending time on Jesus going to the cross. And so last week we saw kind of, in a sense, all the pieces being set up. We saw the woman anoint Jesus, preparing for his death. We saw the betrayer. We saw Judas agree to take funds to betray Jesus. So all the pieces are set for what is coming. Now, I'll remind you that Matthew's Jewish audience would naturally be appalled at a crucified Messiah. That doesn't make any sense. In fact, it's abhorrent to think of that. The Messiah is supposed to be victorious leader, the one who's going to reign over Israel and over all the world. And that's true, but Jesus has very clearly shown that he has a different agenda to start with in all of this. But for Matthew's Jewish audience, they have to overcome that, that reality of a crucified Messiah. I mean, how could the Messiah be crucified? If Jesus really was the Messiah, how could that happen? Was he just a pretender? Was he just a hapless victim? How is it possible that the Messiah could die? And so some of what we see in how Matthew unfolds the narrative in Matthew 26 and 27 and 28 is showing, proving through the events of the crucifixion and then the resurrection, proving for his Jewish audience that indeed, the, no, this wasn't a mistake. This wasn't, the Messiah, Jesus wasn't some hapless victim. In fact, the way that things unfolded even in his death shows that he is the true Messiah. And so what we see today in our text before us is Matthew showing and demonstrating through Jesus' intimate knowledge of his own death that he is, in fact, the true Messiah. What we see today in each of the portions of Matthew 26, 17 through 30 is knowledge, Jesus' knowledge of his death at every level, even to seemingly inconsequential things like where he's going to celebrate the Passover, but up to and including the interpretation of his own death. Jesus knows all of it. And so the big idea for this morning is this. Rather than being shunning the idea of a dying Messiah, really what Matthew and Jesus are going to show is that you need to devour the dying Messiah, since Jesus knows everything about his sacrifice. I use that word devour intentionally. It's a very visceral word to illustrate faith and trust. Devour the dying Messiah, since Jesus knows everything about his sacrifice. So let's see Jesus' knowledge of his own death. Let's start in verses 17 through 19 with this reality that Jesus knows where he will celebrate the Passover. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, and we pause right there, and you need to understand just historically that um, the Passover was like a feast on one day. The Passover celebrated the Jews... Uh, and the, well, the Israelites and their rescue from slavery in Egypt, killing of the firstborn. Uh, they had the first Passover. They spread the, the blood of the lamb over their door lentils and the angel of death, the destroyer passed by. But the, the destruction of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn was so great that it prompted Pharaoh very quickly to send, send Israel out. And in that feast, they were to eat unleavened bread. And what happened was that not only was Passover to be celebrated, but then the seven days after Passover, you had a, a week-long feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And really, through history, you can kind of see how they would get kind of melded and mushed together. They're kind of technically separate, but they're basically, uh, one could refer to the Passover and mean that whole period of time, or one could refer to the unleavened, br unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 
and refer to that. And so the first day of unleavened bread is the Passover. It's just another way of referring to it. The first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, you might scratch your head if you think about it for a minute, because uh, Jesus was just in Bethany. Bethany is less than two miles outside of Jerusalem um, on the Mount of Olives. He's already got a lodging place. So it's kind of interesting that the disciples would come up to him and say, well, where do you want us to eat this? Why don't you just eat it in Bethany? Why don't you just eat it out there? Well, here's the reason. Um, as uh, uh, Once things moved where Israel was in a land, in a particular place, and once the temple, God had placed his name and his presence in the temple in a particular city, which is referenced in Deuteronomy, they were to only celebrate the Passover in that place, in the city that had the temple. This is referenced actually in Deuteronomy 16, 5 through 6. So technically, Bethany is outside Jerusalem city limits. So if you're actually going to celebrate Passover, you have to be within the city limits. So Jesus has to find a place to eat the Passover. And that's what the disciples are asking about. Uh, where do you want us to, figure, to eat the Passover? Now, keep in mind that some estimates say that the population of Jerusalem with all the pilgrims, et cetera, during this time, uh, you know, five times what it would normally be. So Jerusalem's packed, right? And this is day of, right? Day of preparations to uh, eat the Passover. And maybe some of the disciples' question is, uh, how are we going to do this? But notice how Jesus answers this. He said, Go into the city to a certain man. And, and really, um, the way it's kind of framed in the original is, uh, go into the city to find so-and-so. Or uh, So this person's known, but he's just not using the name. Um, so Jesus knows this person he's talking about. He's like, yeah, go find so-and-so. He just blanked out the name. Uh, go into the city to a certain man. Go, go find so-and-so and say to him, the teacher, so evidently this person knows Jesus as the teacher. He knows he is, um, he's at least respected by this person as the teacher. Maybe he acknowledges, in fact, that he is the Messiah. But this, the, the, there's evidently a relationship between so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, and, and Jesus. Go into the city to, a, to Mr. So-and-so and say to him, the teacher says... My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So what does this show? I mean, on one level, you could just say, well, it just advances the plot. It just kind of carries us to the next stage. But I think it shows more than that because it shows uh, Jesus is not surprised. Jesus is in total control of the situation. What did the disciples do? The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Preparing the Passover would include uh, going to the temple to have your lamb slaughtered and bringing it back um, so that you could sit down and eat the Passover meal. But Jesus is in total control. That's how he's characterized. That's how he's presented. He is, even in this something as mundane as like, well, where are we going to eat the Passover in a crowded city? Jesus already has it planned out. Jesus already knows what he's going to do. It feeds into that characterization and that argument against the idea that Jesus is just some hapless victim. He's just some, uh, you know, he just stumbled into his own death. No, no, not at all. Jesus had it all known. He knew, and he knows, in this case, where he's going to celebrate the Passover. But then that escalates in the next section illustrating Jesus' knowledge, which is this. Jesus knows who his betrayer is. Jesus knows who his betrayer is. Look at verse 20. When it is evening, now, if you go back to the stipulations for the Passover, you were to eat the Passover at twilight. The lambs would get slaughtered, and then you would actually eat uh, in the evening. So this makes sense. You've gotten all the preparations done, uh, and then uh, the, the evening is happening, so they're eating the feast. When it was evening, 
you reclined at table with the 12. Uh, this is normal. Uh, the, you would have a low table and you would kind of lean on one side like your left side and you would have your right hand out and you would eat. You would have your feet out from the table. So they're reclining at table. They're eating together. Now there's 12 guys around this table. It's probably a U-shaped table. Um, uh, we don't know for sure, but they're reclining at table. And I mention that only for illustration of what is to clarify something that Jesus is going to say here. So they recline at table with the 12. So it doesn't seem like Jesus has invited anyone else. It's the 12. It's Jesus' closest inner circle. He's got lots of disciples, but the people he's going to celebrate the Passover with, he would celebrate the Passover with your family. Jesus is considered his disciples, his family, but in particular, the 12, his closest inner circle. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will hand me over or betray me. Now, Jesus has predicted, uh, we went through last week, all of those for starting in Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20. Jesus has predicted he's going to be handed over, but it's kind of a vague phrase. He's going to be handed over to the Jews, he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. That doesn't necessarily imply that he's going to be betrayed. Now, we saw last week in all of the pieces being set up that Judas has already agreed for 30 pieces of silver, maybe three to four months wages uh, to sell Jesus out. He kind of sees Jesus going down in flames and he's, well, I might as well get something out of this. We, as the readers, know that Judas is the betrayer. In fact, uh, Matthew has clued us in on this way back to naming the 12 uh, disciples. He characterized Judas as the one who was going to betray him. So we already know that. But if you think about the characters in the story, if you think about the 12 themselves, they know that Jesus is going to be handed over, but they don't necessarily know he's going to be betrayed. And they certainly don't necessarily know he's going to be betrayed by one of the 12. But Jesus now, all of a sudden, in the middle of a very intimate meal, which is supposed to be celebratory, says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to hand me over. What's their response? Verse 22, and they were very sorrowful. It's not so much the idea of sorrow as distress. They're disturbed, which you would be, right? This is the 12 closest companions, the 12 closest disciples of Jesus. And he has just said that one of them is going to betray him. And so they are disturbed because they all know each other. They spent time together for the last three years or so. And notice how they respond. They began to say to one another, surely not I, Lord. Now the way, this is a question that they ask, but the way the question is framed, they actually expect a negative answer. It's not me, right? <laughs> right? There's some uncertainty there, but it's not as if they're contemplating that they really think that they are going to betray Jesus. They're saying, surely not. Not me, right? They expect a negative answer. It's like, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. They call Jesus Lord. He's been their master. They recognize him as the Messiah. And it is a question, and Jesus kind of develops. He just, he just said that one of the 12, he hasn't specified, one of the 12. And then they're each one going around the table. It's like, it's not me, right? It couldn't be me. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, what's the dish? So it seems like... Um, if you look at some of the later information we have on the Passover, maybe how it was celebrated at this time, you'd have this dish of like uh, crushed fruit and nuts. And it was supposed to kind of remind you of uh, the mortar that you made the bricks with in Egypt. And this is probably the dish that's being referred to. It doesn't really matter that much other than it just illustrates, well, what kind of dish are you talking about? Now, keep in mind, you have 12 men, probably around a U-shaped table, so you might read this and say, well, that doesn't help us very much because it says, um, you know, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me. It's like, well, any one of them could have done it. Well, 
Not necessarily, right? Because if you've got 12 men at a table and you've kind of got all of this food spread out and maybe you've got multiple of these dishes to eat from, what is Jesus effectively saying? He's effectively saying someone in my vicinity, someone right next door to me, someone who is close enough to me and where I'm sitting to dip in the dish that I have. So he has narrowed it, in essence, from the 12 down to someone very close to me. So he's narrowed it. He's he's narrowed it down. And he elaborates, verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Now, right there, again, Jesus is showing this, this is not... This is not by happenstance. All of this is unfolding just as the scriptures have portrayed it. In other words, this is according to divine plan, which again helps the whole argument against the idea of being appalled at a crucified Messiah, right? Jesus is saying, no, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. This is exactly according to plan. It's just as it is written, son of man goes which is kind of a euphemism for saying he's going to his death. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So here you see the reality of absolute divine sovereignty and planning over everything, and yet at the same time, absolute human responsibility for the greatest evil that we could conceive of, of betraying the Messiah. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas has total responsibility for what he is doing, even though what he is doing is playing out the divine plan of the Son of Man, the Messiah, being going to death, going to crucifixion. Now, Judas speaks up. So you imagine each one of the 12 around the table are going around saying, it's not me, right? Surely it's not me, right? So what does Judas have to do to maintain appearances, right? He has to say the same thing. So Judas, who would betray him, so Matthew's reminding us and just emphasizing, here's the betrayer, what's he going to do? Judas, who would betray him, answered, surely not I, rabbi, Now, notice the difference in how he addressed Jesus versus the rest of them. Everyone else said, surely not I, Lord. And then here, Judas says, surely not I, Rabbi. Now, you might not think, well, it doesn't seem that big of a deal. Well, except for the fact that in Matthew, the people who call Jesus just teacher or rabbi are the people who are outsiders, are the people who, like the Pharisees, are giving lip service to who Jesus is as a teacher, but are not committed to him in any sense. And so this is just another way of showing Jesus, Judas isn't committed. Oh yeah, he wandered around with Jesus for three years. He went out on mission to, in chapter 10, went out two by two with the other disciples to proclaim the gospel to those in Israel but he's not a true disciple. He doesn't, doesn't really, he's not submitted to Jesus as Lord. And notice what Jesus does. He said to him, you've said it, which is kind of just a, I mean, it's an affirmation. Yes, it's you, but it's just kind of a, a a little more vague or a little more um, softened. But you notice how Jesus has narrowed this. He said, one of the 12, Someone right next close to me who has been able to dip his bread in the the bowl with me all the way down to, yeah, it's you, Judas. Do you see that? That narrowing. Now, what's the point? Jesus knows who his betrayer is. It just feeds into the the whole argument. Jesus knows everything about his death. Jesus isn't just stumbling around and just happened to get betrayed by someone and happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, Jesus is functioning exactly in accord with God's plan that the Messiah be crucified, and he knows who's going to even betray him. What does it prove? It proves that 
Jesus truly is the Messiah. So rather than a dying Messiah being the offense that it naturally would be, no, because Jesus knows everything about his death, it shows that he truly is the Messiah. And what he has done, everything that he did and does in his death and leading up to it is intentional. We think about that for ourselves. You know, we, we, we don't have that. We probably were so used to in Christendom kind of, or at least being aware of the story of Jesus, right? Uh, and, and the gospel record. We're not shocked by a crucified Messiah. But maybe it doesn't hit you like it should that Jesus' death was not an accident, nor unanticipated. Jesus called all the shots, showed he was in conformity to the Old Testament while doing it. What should that do for you? It should hit you with the force that Jesus is who he said he was, who he is. No one else has ever done this, and you should stand in awe. It should blow you over. This man knew everything that was coming to him, and he walked into it boldly. He walked into it because he was trusting his father. He walked into it because he knew this was the father's plan, even though it meant his, his death. Jesus was not a hapless victim or a weakling. You must see him as the strong, in-control Messiah and worthy of your trust. Called all the shots, knew everything leading up to his death. Which leads us to the most significant portion of this text. And it's this, in verses 26 through 30. Jesus knows the covenantal significance of his death. So he knows where he's going to celebrate the Passover. He knows who his betrayer is. But Jesus also knows the significance of his death. It's interesting, what we get in Matthew 26, uh, 26 through 30 is really the, um, at least in the accounts, the narrative of his death and resurrection, it's really the only place where Jesus explains the significance of his death. Uh, now, there's other parts in the gospel where he, he talks about the, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's been other places and indications in the gospel uh, of his upcoming suffering uh, and death. But he really hasn't explained at length the significance of it. But here he does. As he institutes his supper, in so doing, he is also explaining the significance of what he's about to do. So let's go ahead and see him do this. Verses 26 through 30. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. It's unleavened bread. Because it's a feast of unleavened bread, okay? So uh, that had a part in the feast. Unleavened bread, if you go back to Exodus 12 and 13, uh, it had a part in the, the, the feast of Passover. Unleavened bread. So he takes unleavened bread, and after blessing, and I think here he's blessing God, he's giving thanks to God, and he breaks it. Now, when we think about breaking it, I mean, this is probably like, uh, you know, it's got no leaven in it, so it's like a flat loaf, probably not like a cracker, but he tears it, and he, he tears it, and he distributes it. So he tears it into 12 pieces. Now, if you were to look at Luke's account, Judas is probably still there when this happens. Uh, he does leave eventually, but he's probably still there through the Lord's Supper, if you look at Luke's account. Um, but he tears this thing into 12 pieces and he distributes it. And then he says this, take, eat, this is my body. In that short language, he is explaining the significance. He's, he explains some of the significance of his death. Now to get this, you need to understand the surrounding context, what is he saying? He's saying very much, uh, he's saying a lot in very short, uh, few, very few words. 
Jesus has predicted again and again that he would die. Not only that he would die, but that he would die by crucifixion, which the imagery of crucifixion and what happened when well known in the first century world, it's horrific. It does involve a, a mutilation as part of the whole procedure of crucifixion. So here Jesus is tearing out bread and he's saying, this is my body. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm, I'm about to die and I'm about to be torn. He's alluding to his death through crucifixion, but he doesn't just say, this is my body. He says, take and eat. Why? Well, what does bread do? Bread gives nourishment. And in fact, in the whole imagery of the original Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the unleavened bread was there because Israel was leaving in haste. They didn't have time to, for the, the loaves to leaven, to rise, right? So they're, they're, it actually describes this in, in the accounts as they're, they're leaving. It says they, they, they basically take unleavened bread with them to nourish them in the initial stages of the exodus. And so he's saying, I'm, my body is about to be torn. It's about to be torn, but that actually is your nourishment. There's not a more visceral picture of eating something to give a picture of faith. He's saying, here's, here's this horrific thing. The crucified Messiah, body being torn, broken, but it's that very horror that actually brings you nourishment. And you need to appropriate it. You need to devour it. What you think about that, that's a very kind of horrific picture of eating someone's flesh. Right? It's been very disturbing, right? Actually, if you want to see this expounded even more, you look at John 6, and it's, it's explained even more in that, that context. But what's the point? It's not that this is actual flesh. He's saying, what's about to happen in my death, the tearing of my body is your nourishment, and you need to eat it. You need to devour it. You need to trust in it, appropriate it. Remember, to a Jew, a crucified Messiah is the most horrific thing, but Jesus is actually saying, yeah, there's horror there, but it's that horror of a crucified Messiah that's actually going to bring you nourishment. And given the backdrop of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and this idea of the, inst the, the original escape in the exodus from Egypt, Effectively, what Jesus is saying is, I'm starting a new exodus, which fits in with what the prophet said in the Old Testament. There's going to be another exodus, uh, uh, even greater than the previous one. Well, what's the exodus from? What's the escape from? What's the slavery? What's the escape from slavery from? Well, Matthew makes that pretty clear if you, as we've read through it. Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Or you can even think of Matthew 4 when Satan is kind of revealed and he's tempting Jesus. And he says, well, if, I'll, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship me. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And what, what is this exodus from? What is this? It is from sin and Satan. Now go back to what Jesus did before he distributed or as he was distributing the bread. He said he was blessing, and I think he was blessing God. He was thanking God, because that's what you would do in a situation. Now, you might think, oh, this is like saying the blessing at a meal, but given what Jesus has just done and the significance of what he's invested it with, he is praising God for sending his son in the flesh to be torn and to nourish his disciples. It brings a whole nother level to it. So he's begun to explain the significance of his death through talking about the bread. But he's not done. Verse 27. And he took a cup. Now, at the Passover dinner, uh, there was no indication in Exodus 12 through 13 of, uh, of cups. Like, cups didn't 
play a prominent role in the original institution of Passover. But from some of the records, extra biblical records we have, I mean, it would have been, they would have all had cups of wine there at the, uh, at the, the Passover meal. But everyone would kind of have their own cup, right? Everyone would have had their own cup. So what's interesting here is Jesus takes a cup, and when he had given thanks to God, he gave it one cup to them, the disciples, saying, drink of it, all of you. Why? For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the picture is, is that Jesus is passing this one cup around. It's got wine in it. And they're all supposed to take a sip. They're supposed to take a, a draft from it. But then he says, why, right? Drink of it, all of you. You need to do this. Why? For this is my blood of the covenant. Let's just start there. One, we can see that he's clearly also linking this with his death. This is my blood. This is, this is about his shed blood that is coming and the death that, uh, by crucifixion that is about to be coming. But it's not just his blood, it's his blood of the covenant. Now that brings in a whole ton of Old Testament ideas. There's only two other places in the Bible, or at least in the Old Testament, I should say, uh, where this language of the blood of the covenant is brought up. One is in Exodus 24. Go to Exodus 24. Like I said, Jesus is packing a lot of significance. He's explaining the significance of his death, but he's doing it in very few words. Now, uh, you look, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 6 of Exodus 24, but let me give you a little context. So Israel comes to Mount Sinai from the Exodus. They come to Mount Sinai, and God descends on Mount Sinai, and then the Ten Commandments are given. And then God gives, uh, he, he forges a covenant with Israel. That covenant effectively makes Israel a nation. Now, Israel was already God's people because of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But effectively, God is make, it makes this new covenant um, called the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant or the Israelite Covenant, however you want to term that. He forms this, other, this covenant with the nation and uh, he gives these stipulations. But then in Exodus 24, there's, there's kind of this, there's this ceremony where the covenant is being sealed. Um, so Moses creates an altar at the base of Mount Sinai. He has 12 pillars that represent the 12 tribes. And then in that context, we look at verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood, so he had sacrif he'd sacrificed some offerings. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood, and he threw it against the altar. Now, why would he do that? So the altar, I think I've used this illustration before, the altar in Israel is like a portal. It's like the link between heaven and earth. That's what it's supposed to portray. And so Moses is tossing this blood against the altar. And then what does he do? Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now notice there's blood on the altar, which is, represents the link with God, and then blood on the people. Well, what's happening? The covenant is being sealed. The bond between this people and God is being sealed, and it's being sealed by blood. Now, this is the Israelite covenant. Is that what Jesus is referring to? No. Well, one, how do I know that? Well, one, because he says, my blood. Here, the, it's the blood of animals. But Jesus is saying, this is my blood. Of the covenant. So he's talking about a different covenant, but a covenant that is nonetheless sealed with blood. What covenant is it then? It's what we call the new covenant. You see, if you walk through the prophets, you get to 
Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Israel is about to go into exile. They fail. They fail in keeping their covenant, and they get exiled from the land. And the problem is, is their sin, the sin of their kings, the sin of their leaders, the sin of just average Joe Israelite, and it ejects them from the land. Well, the problem is, how are you going to deal with this? Because even if you bring the people back, you've still got the problem of sin, and that's where in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, there's the prophetic solution to Israel breaking and walking away from God. I'll go ahead and read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with our fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares Yahweh, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more." The prophets reflect on this new covenant. If you were to go to Isaiah, Isaiah, in the first kind of inklings of this new covenant, he would, de- he would describe it being instituted by the substitutionary death of the suffering servant who's been identified with Jesus in Matthew. In, Matthew, in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, you don't have to turn there. It's a familiar passage, but it's the idea of a substitute sacrifice. The Messiah will be a substitute sacrifice for his people. And it's his blood that is going to be the bond, the initiation of the new covenant. What else does he, Jesus, say? Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out which is very sacrificial language. If you were to look at Leviticus, early chapters of Leviticus, you would see this language of the blood being poured out at the base of the altar, and then the, someone would be forgiven. Or you could look back to, like I said, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. It talks about how the suffering servant, his blood's going to be poured out for the many. And it matches exactly what we have here. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Because that's the problem. That was the problem in Israel. That was the, pro- uh, that's the problem of humanity is sin. How are you going to forgive sin? How can God forgive sin? How can he have a covenant people, a people close to him, only ultimately through dealing with their sin? Did you notice that this is a Passover meal, but the lamb isn't mentioned at all, is it? Just bread and this cup. But based on what Jesus has said, it's very clear that who he views as the Passover lamb himself. The blood of the Passover lamb was to be spread over, smeared over someone's doorway to protect from God's judgment on Egypt, on the gods of Egypt, The angel, the destroyer, would see the blood and he would pass over, hence the name, um, the place. Well, that's what Jesus' blood is doing. And what does Jesus tell the disciples to do? Drink it. Which, again, is a very visceral picture of faith. Drink it. Which, again, that is a horrific picture. Actually, it's very explicit in the Old Testament. You don't drink blood. It defiles you. You're not supposed to because that's where God has given, in Leviticus 17, 10 through 12, it talks about how God has given blood for atonement for your lives. But, and so you, you would never eat flesh with blood in it. You would never eat or, eat or drink blood. It's a horrific image, imagery, and that's intentional. Jesus is saying, yeah, there's horror here. Horror in the Messiah being crucified, in the God-man being crucified for the forgiveness of sin, and his life being poured out for the forgiveness of sin. But what's the only proper response? Drink it. Devour the, devi- the 
the dying Messiah. That's what faith looks like. Faith is not just a mental assent to facts. You can agree all you want that Jesus is God. You can agree all you want that Jesus died for people's sins. You can agree all you want that he rose again. You can agree all you want that he ascended on high. It doesn't change anything. Unless you appropriate it for yourself. Unless you drink it. Unless you devour it. Unless you say, this is the only way that I have any life. is through the death of of the Messiah for the forgiveness of my sins. Now, what's amazing about this is Jesus is not done drawing connections with what he is saying here and what he's doing with the cup and the bread. Look at verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What is he saying? Uh, He's alluding to basically when everything is wrapped up. Do you remember in the Lord's Prayer, uh, he he prays, uh, he tells his disciples, pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, the Father's kingdom come. And that is the ultimate end goal of all of the redemptive storyline. God has always planned to, has always ruled, and he has planned to rule through a human king, and he will do that through Jesus, and everything will be wrapped up under Jesus. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul says that at that point, when everything is subjected to Christ, he's going to subject it to the Father. So basically what Jesus is alluding to here is like at the end end, new heavens and new earth, when everything is wrapped up, saying, I'm not drinking this again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, what is he saying? I think he's saying that at that moment, when everything is renewed, everything is restored, when his disciples are near him, everyone purchased, everyone forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, when everything that that blood purchased is seen, when the full reality of the new covenant is in force, then Jesus is going to drink. And it's connected with this idea of this feast. If you were to go back, you don't have to but, uh, right now, but you could look there later. Uh, the Isaiah 25 passage, it talks about God making a feast at the end, and wine, aged, well-aged wine, plays very, figured, uh, play, uh, plays very prominently in that picture. It's a glorious feast. It's a celebratory meal. And Jesus is saying, I, I'm drinking it now, and I'm not drinking it again until it's all done. And so even, in the, even as Jesus is thinking about the significance of his death, he's also connecting that with the full culmination of not just saving sinners— but restoring all things, restoring the whole of creation. It's a cosmic connection. It's interesting if you were to look back at Exodus 24, you don't have to. After the blood of the covenant is instituted, after that is done, what happens is the elders of Israel uh, and the priests, they, it says that they eat and they see God. Which gives kind of a foreshadowing of what Jesus is talking about. Here's the blood of my covenant, and that ultimately is going to purchase the reality of dwelling and enjoying God with joy, peace for all eternity. One final connection with this. One final connection that shows that Jesus is the rightful Messiah. Uh, you know, Jesus earlier in 
uh, the, in Matthew, when he was disputing with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he kind of asked them a question. He says, whose son is the Christ? And then he eventually quotes Psalm 110. One of the things that Psalm 110 uh, talks about, it talks about the Messiah. It's very clear that it's talking about the Messiah. But it says that the Messiah is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, what? Well, if you were to go back to Genesis 14, which is where Melchizedek is first mentioned, he's kind of portrayed as the ideal king. He's king of Jerusalem. He's the king of righteousness, which is what Melchizedek means. He is the king of peace. That's what Salem means. Uh, he's also the priest of God most high. And he brings out bread and wine. Doesn't explain it, just says he does. Why? Well, I think, I mean, uh, he did it to nourish Abraham at that time. But what is happening here? What does Jesus do? Jesus is behaving in a very priestly way in this meal. And he brings out bread and wine. Why? To show he's the rightful Melchizedek. He's the true Melchizedek, which is what Hebrews does. It expands on that reality. It's just one more layer, an element of showing Jesus is the true Messiah. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true priest. Jesus explained, has just explained the significance of his death in a few words, and then what happens? Verse 30, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The transition verse takes us to the Mount of Olives. They've been eating in the city. They've eaten the Passover meal. Jesus has explained the significance of his death, and now he goes to the Mount of Olives. How do we apply all of this? Um... Well, Jesus interprets the significance of his own death in the Last Supper. I hope you see that the Lord's Supper is not just some ritual that we do as Christians. It goes to the core of our faith. You see, we were all of us under slavery to sin and Satan. We were all of us separated from the triune God and unable to approach him. But Jesus came, the God-man, to ransom his people as king and priest through his own sacrifice. When we eat the Lord's Supper, there's, we eat with horror in a sense. Why? Because Jesus' death is horrific, because our sin is horrific. But we devour the meal because it illustrates our visceral faith in Jesus that he is our nourishment. He is the basis for our life, what he has done through his sacrifice. This is the meal that commemorates the act by which we are freed and made into a covenant people. When you drink, it's, he says, it's my blood of the covenant. When you drink, you're saying you're part of the covenant. You have allegiance to Jesus. You're saying, I belong to Jesus. I obey Jesus. This meal reminds us and helps us nourish our faith in Christ. It's also a teaser of the kingdom feast that we'll eat with Christ, with all true disciples in the kingdom of the Father. All of those things, there's so much imagery going on. We look back to what Jesus did, we look around us to the people that Jesus has ransomed, and we look forward to the culmination of what this meal means in the future. That's what Jesus has set up. As you approach the meal, here's what you want to avoid. You want to avoid the extremes of wrongful caution and undue flippancy. Or you could think about it like this. Uh, it's the extremes of horror and faith. You know, we often, you know, when we present the meal, we often say that um, you need to examine yourself. And indeed you do. But some, the way we do that sometimes isn't helpful because um, we'll say, well, uh, what we can do is we can think in our heads, well, this week wasn't that good. I haven't been very good this week. Therefore, I shouldn't partake in the meal. That is the wrong way to approach the Lord's Supper. Because the very thing that cleanses you is being pictured by the Lord's Supper, namely Jesus' death, forgiveness from whatever you've done the last week or the, the whole of your life. But on the other side, there can be an undue flippancy. Ah, this is just something that we do. 
I'm going to go forward because I don't want to be embarrassed by sitting down. Oh, but this is significant. This is portraying the very core of the Christian faith. This is saying that we depend ultimately on Jesus' death on our behalf, his slaughter on our place, his spilling of his blood for our forgiveness. You don't want to eat like Judas. Like I said, according to Luke's account, it seems like Judas is still there. Judas ate the meal. But not because he had allegiance to Christ and it did him no good. It's faith in Christ, allegiance to Christ that makes the difference. So as you eat, you eat with a receptive faith towards Christ. And you also do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Both with the bread and the cup, he gave thanks. He blessed the Father. He praised the Father for the provision, not just of the physical elements, but of what they represented of the Father's provision of his Son to redeem from sin. So we bumped up taking the Lord's Supper because it intersects perfectly with with this this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray um, for our time, and then I'm going to maneuver down here and just explain the logistics, because we're going to do a couple things differently this morning. But let's go ahead and pray as we transition to the meal. Jesus, you are amazing. You are the rightful king. You knew everything about your death, especially and including its significance. Jesus, we thank you for your body torn, for your blood spilled to make us a people. Lord, you, t- you say to eat, to drink, Lord, help us to do so with faith and true allegiance, not in flippancy, not in an over-caution, but also not in flippancy. Lord, we are about to partake in this meal. We know that you haven't drinking of the cup and will not until you come again, and we want to look forward to the kingdom that you have promised. Lord, grow our faith. Nourish us even now as we eat this meal. Nourish our faith in you and what the meal represents. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to scoot down front and I've got some logistics for you.